Well, the title of tonight's message is The Humble and Reverent Heart. The Humble and Reverent Heart. We'll see tonight that one of the focus focuses of this Psalm 25 is on being taught or growing in our faith, being instructed by the Lord and led and directed by the Lord. And as you think, in, as you think about being taught, being teachable is critical to development, personal growth, and success in life. Now, that's not just in the biblical realm. That's in every facet of life. If you're not teachable, then you're not going to grow. You're not going to develop. You're not going to be successful because the fact of the matter is that you as an island unto yourself do not have all of the understanding and insights that are necessary for everything that you'll face or have to deal with in life. You need to be teachable. You need to have the capacity for learning. And as you think about being teachable, humility is an essential characteristic of being teachable. If you think you know it all, or you have nothing more to learn, then you can't learn. If you're not willing to listen because, again, you believe that you already know everything, then you're not going to grow in your understanding. Now, again, that's in every aspect of life. That's with your hobbies. That's with your work life. That's with your spiritual life. That's as it relates to your relationships with other people, too. If you're never willing to listen and to be humble and have that posture that says, I don't know everything that needs to be known. I don't understand everything that I need to understand. I have room for personal growth. Then you're not going to be successful. And as you think about humility being one of the characteristics that makes teaching or learning possible, the other is having respect for the teacher. You're never going to learn or be taught from somebody if you don't have respect for the teacher. Respect for the teacher or the one giving the instruction, it's a vital component in any effective learning environment, note that I say effective learning environment, it's still possible to maybe pick up a few things while at the same time having a disdain from the, for the person who's teaching you. It's possible that some of it might filter through, but it won't be effective. It certainly won't be most effective if you don't have any respect for the instructor or the teacher. See, the reality is that when you have a respect for or a reverence for the one who's doing the teaching, you tend to pay better attention. You tend to internalize the instruction that you're given. You tend to take it to heart. You tend to have more buy-in to that instruction than you would if you have no respect for the teacher. And so when you think about God's desires for your life, God desires to teach you and to direct your paths. And the Bible says that only fools would despise God's wisdom and instruction. And so as you think about David and his processing through matters of faith or principles of faith, David realizes the critical importance of personal humility and respect for God as it relates to spiritual growth and well-being. He realizes that God wants to instruct him. He realizes that God wants to direct him. He realizes that that won't be effective so long as he lacks humility or so long as he lacks a reverential awe for God such that he would take what God has to say to heart with a mentality that says, I can recognize my own smallness and his greatness. I can recognize that he knows best, that he knows things that I couldn't possibly know. And because I have that reverential awe for him and this humility as it relates to my own understanding... I have the potential now to take that instruction, take that direction in a dependent kind of a posture and apply it to my life. 
And then, and only then, when that's true, then I'll experience that spiritual growth and that spiritual well-being that God desires me to experience, that he wants for me. Remember, God is a good God. God is good all of the time. God is on your side. God wants you to thrive. God isn't interested in holding you back. God isn't withholding anything that you need. God isn't trying to have, he doesn't have a punitive mindset towards you. He has your best interests at heart, and he has your best interests at heart all of the time. So then every word he would communicate to you is intended to benefit you in some way. And the question is, do you believe that? Have you accepted that? As you sit here tonight in this present moment, are you banking on that? Are you trusting in that? Are you convinced that that's true? Or is it just the kind of thing that you've heard a thousand times over? You know that the right answer is to say, yes, I'm convinced that that's true. You can give lip service to the idea that God must know best. God has things to teach you. God can lead you in a way you could never lead yourself that would be most beneficial to you. Is that just lip service? Is that just words? Where you've heard it often enough that you knew, no, at least in this circle, in this crowd, I better acknowledge that. But in your heart of hearts, when it comes to the practical rubber meets the road in your life, you're doing your own thing. You're on autopilot. You have no concern in the world for what God could have to say to you or what instruction he could have for your life or what direction he could have for your life. Because what are you missing? You're ultimately missing humility and you're missing that reverential awe for God that's causing you to not really trust him Because to trust him would be to follow him, to listen to him, to rest in him, to have a dependent spirit and attitude toward him. And David gets that. Now, does he always apply to his life? The answer is no. But let's look at it. He brings out those two critical criteria in terms of personal growth being humility and reverential awe for God in Psalm 25. So if you're not there, turn there. And we'll take a look at these 22 verses here, Lord willing, here tonight in Psalm 25. I think for the sake of just the flow and context, even though it's 22 verses, let's read through them together and then we'll backtrack and start breaking down some of these different subsections within this psalm. So remember, when you're thinking about psalms, it's poetry. It's also the hymnal for the nation of Israel to some extent. And so you can think of this as verses to a particular song. Different verses. But we'll pick, pick up in verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old, from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself 
shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. So fascinating. I trust you may already have been uplifted just by reading through this once. But we'll pick this apart a little bit and make some observations from the text. We start with these first three verses that make up the first stanza, so to speak. God alone is my refuge and source of help is how I have this labeled. God alone is my refuge and source of help. Now, as you think about this, rescue begins with turning to the Lord for assistance. It involves first recognizing his willingness and ability to save. It also acknowledges or recognizes your own personal inability to save yourself. So there's the first aspect even of humility that we see from the very first verses here, this idea that if you're going to cry out to God for assistance, if you're going to recognize that God alone is your source of refuge and your source of help, if you're going to recognize that, it's to acknowledge, I can't fix this. I can't solve this on my own. I can't live a life that would bring you honor and glory apart from your working in my thinking and working in my life and teaching me and directing my steps. I need you, Lord. to do that. That mindset that says, I'm going to learn to depend on the Lord instead of my natural inclination, which is to operate independently, to say, I have this figured out. I can do this on my own. So we have those aspects. It It involves turning to the Lord for assistance. It involves recognizing his willingness and ability to save, and it involves having some humility. Now, David communicates this clearly with the first two lines. You see these words, to you, Now, two descriptions, I lift up my soul and I trust in you. These are very emotional words. There's some depth to these words. I lift up my very soul, the essence of who I am. I lift that up to you. I cry out to you. I call out to you. I pray to you. I come to you. See, to you is the one I turn. Then you have the description, I trust in you. Now, that's a pervasive statement that will summarize this humble and reverent heart in the sense that it's only because of a humble and reverent heart that you can really trust or depend on anyone. Absent those two things being present in your thinking, you won't trust or depend on or rely on or rest in anyone else. And so that's right from the beginning we're seeing this even with this summary statement, I trust in you. And the idea is, I bring my deepest concerns or I bear my soul to you and trust or I set my hope That word for trust, some translations have, I set my hope on you. Isn't that a wonderful way of saying that word? I fix my hope. I set my confidence. My my hope meaning a confident expectation. I fix that on you. And so I bring my deepest concerns. I bear my soul to you and trust. I set my hope in your ability to undertake on my behalf. That's really what David's saying here. I stake my well-being. I stake that on you. I depend on you to bring that about. Now, again, we see David express a very personal relationship with God. Just listen to this language. 
To you, O Lord, that's Yahweh. That's God's personal name there when you see that capital L-O-R-D. To you, God's personal name, I lift up my soul. I bear my soul to you. Now he says, oh my God. There's that personal aspect that you see often in these psalms that we've been looking at with David, this personal aspect of this personal relationship and walk with God, this trust and dependence that he has on him. And you see, when you think about trust, it involves both confidence in God. That's why I like that phrase, I set my hope in you or on you. But trust, it involves confidence in God and also dependence on God. So I have to have confidence in God, his willingness to save me, and his ability to save me. And we have that there in those first phrases. Now, it's followed then by specific requests that David has. So he states this mindset that says, I trust you. I have all of my hope fixed in you. And because that's true, I'm going to ask you for these specific petitions, these specific requests that I have. And they're all identified by this word let. Allow this to be true, God, or make this to be true. So then he says, let me not be ashamed. Another word for shame there is disgraced. Let me not be disgraced, meaning let my faith not be for nothing. Respond in a way that validates my trust and dependence on you. Let not my enemies triumph over me. That's a pretty practical, a very specific and present issue that any person in leadership is facing, frankly. So David is in a position of leadership in the nation of Israel. All of you who are here, I'm assuming, understand that David was, after Saul, he was a king of united Israel, where you had all of the tribes still together, followed by his son Solomon before we had a divided nation, and we had ten northern tribes, and then the two tribes of Judah, which was Judah mixed with part of Benjamin. And so as you think about those responsibilities that come from a place of leadership, anybody who's led a home, anybody who's led at work, who's led in church activities, you realize that that's, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of attack that is faced when you're in any of those kinds of positions. Sometimes it's due to jealousy. Sometimes it's due to other people thinking they deserve the position or they know better. Uh, sometimes it's just due to, in it, when it comes to spiritual matters, it's due to the curse of sin and the attack of the flesh on anything that is good and noble because the flesh resists and revolts against anything that God's trying to do. The flesh is in polar opposition to the things of faith. And so when that rears its ugly head, even within a local church, it's not pretty and it undermines the ministry. It undermines the mission. It takes away from the f- primary focus. So sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's overt and direct satanic attack because Satan is deeply interested in shutting up our message, to quiet our message, to silence this church, to silence the message of who Jesus is and what he's done, to take the focus off of Jesus Christ and make the focus on, put the focus on other things instead. Now David recognizes that. He's facing attacks that some of them are of his own making due to just errors that he's made in his own life and the consequences that come from that. Some of them, again, are, are flesh-driven. Some of them are satanic. But he's in a position of leadership. And the reality is if you're in that position, you're facing attack. You're facing advers- adversity. You're having to deal with hard things. And the reality is that he then says, let not my enemies triumph over me. That's a very real thing, especially in the world that he lived in that was a very violent world. This was just not 
personal attacks. This wasn't spiritual attacks in terms of the spiritual realm. This was actual overt physical attacks that he was facing as well from actual enemies, armed enemies that were seeking to destroy the nation of Israel. And that was from within, revolution from within, people revolting against him. Also, other countries and nations that were attacking from without. So then he goes on to say the third one, let no one who waits on you be ashamed and just speaking to this idea of being disgraced in the sense that if I'm waiting on the Lord, that he's a God who's going to answer. He's in a God who's going to respond. He's a God who's going to undertake to provide what is needed. Now, is it always in a way that he would have wanted, David, in his life? No. But is God always working for our best? And the answer is yes. Was he doing that in David's time? Yes. Was he doing that in Adam's time? Yes. Is he doing that in Noah's time? Yes. Is he doing that in our day today, I think I started with that. The answer is yes. Because he's always been the same God. He's never changed at all. He's always been for us. He's never been against us. So no matter which man of faith or woman of faith you can find in the pages of scriptures, God was for him or her. That's a fact. It's a fixed fact. And he's for you. And so the reality is when you even see that statement, let no one who waits on you be ashamed, the truth is God has never let anyone down and he never will. Now the fourth statement is let those be ashamed. So the ones who should be disgraced are those who deal treacherously without cause. Don't reward the unrighteous, he's saying effectively. Don't let them be exalted as they are rebelling and rejecting and thumbing their nose, so to speak, at you, Lord. Don't let that be true. So then we move on to the second section, teach me, Lord. So we have that first section, God alone is my refuge and my source of help. Now David moves to teach me, Lord. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. Let's read them again. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. So teach me and lead me. And we, this is really the second address or the second part, stanza, if you will, of this poem or this song. Now consider the verbs that David uses here. They all reflect a dependent mentality. You see, show me your ways. Then you see, teach me your paths. Then you see, lead me in your truth and teach me again. So show, teach, lead, teach. See how much dependence is there? It's all focused on what God needs to do in his life, this is David speaking, it's all focused on what God wants to do and needs to do in your life. This isn't about David. This is about God undertaking to bring about the change that is needed in David's life. Just like it's not you who's going to make the transformation take place in your spiritual life. It's about trusting God, depending on him with a dependent mindset, a posture that says, I, don't, I can't do this, I can't make these changes, but if I yield myself as a lump of clay in your skilled hands as the master potter, you can bring about those changes in my life. You can teach me, you can direct me, you can show me. And then he doubles down on teaching. See, God wants to direct your paths. He wants to direct your ways. And it only occurs when you're presently trusting him. Now again, back to humility. There's our second aspect of humility. You can't have this idea that I need help and that God alone is my source of refuge and help without humility. You can't have this posture that says, show me, teach me, lead me, teach me, if you don't have humility. It involves humility. So David's posture is one of trust and dependence. And you see that with this phrase, for you are the God of my salvation. He knows where the source of his rescue is going to come from. My help comes from you. 
My help comes from you. And there's a song that says, don't have to see it to believe it. it just, it's part of a bridge of the psalm. It says, my help comes from you. And then the background, the echo is, don't have to see it to believe it. My help comes from you. Don't have to see it to believe it. Don't have to see it because I know, because I know it's true. And you think about that. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that the source of your help and your rescue with anything it is that you're going through, whether it's the physical realm, emotional realm, financial realm, spiritual realm, whatever relational realm, whatever thing it is that you're going through, God is the source of help. God is the source of salvation with what you're going through. Now, again, that salvation doesn't include God being some kind of a magic genie that answers our need in exactly the way that we think he should or that even in our human understanding we think would best minister to the need. God says he'll promise to meet the need or to undertake for the need and to use that need in a way that will benefit us and bring him glory. He promises that without promising that he'll undertake in the way that we think he should. So now what do we come back to? Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Can you accept that when God's answer to your present dilemma is to not take away the thorn in the flesh, to not take away the trial, to not take away the suffering, but to give you the grace that is necessary for you to grow and for him to be glorified in the face of that trial? Can you trust him with that? And you see, that's much harder than trusting God to fix things exactly the way we want him to because we make God out to be the great fix-it man. And that's never what he promised to do. He says, I'll fix it, but I'll fix it in terms of fixing it or arranging it for your good and my glory, which is not the same as how you might imagine things being fixed. Now, if you think about this, if the first is true, then the second should be as well. What I mean by that is, if God is the source of salvation, then on you I will wait all the day long. On you, I wait all the day. If you're convinced that God is the exclusive source of your salvation and rescue with whatever it is you're going for, going through or dealing with, then naturally, the only response, the only reasonable response to being convinced of that is to wait for Him to act and undertake and lead and direct in your life. So you don't start with, I wait on the Lord without the first being true. I trust the Lord. I see that He's my source of rescue and salvation and that causes me to rest and wait on Him. Now, how long? For two seconds until I go back to wallowing? For five minutes until I again turn to my own devices, my own understanding, my own fix-it plan? No, I wait on Him all the day. I continually wait on you, God, to rescue and undertake in my life. I don't just give it to you just to pull it right back down. It's like casting burdens to the Lord that are heavy backpacks filled with rocks that we've been carrying around, things that have been weighing us down in life, and we see that to carry this is foolish because God says, I want to carry this for you. I want to be the one who gives you rest even in the face of what you're going through. And so you cast that burden on Him, but you keep an anchor rope connected to it. And a few minutes later, a few days later, a few hours later, you, pe- you pull that out of his lap, so to speak, that he's been faithful to carry for however long you allowed him to carry it, and you start carrying that same weight again. And God's like, don't do that. 
maintain that trust in me as the exclusive source of rescue and salvation and let me carry it permanently. Let me undertake to give you the grace that is needed for you to go through this trial that you're going through. Let me be the strength that you need when you're weak. Let me be the sufficiency you lack when you're insufficient. Let me be adequate where you're inadequate. Let me fill in the gaps there because that's the kind of God I am. Can we do that? Can we trust him with that? See, you have to give up control and self-confidence in order to be instructed and led. Let me say that again. You have to give up control and self-confidence in order to be instructed and led. There's the humility in that. That's very consistent with what you're aware of from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some of you young people, do you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Any hands? How about if I started you out? Trust in the Lord with all your... Okay, there's another one to put on the list, kids. Every once in a while, I kind of quiz you to see where we're at with our memory verses. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, add that to the list. Make a note. I want to see pencils writing now. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I see my daughter's writing in the air, which won't help her remember that in the future. (laughs) Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. So you think about that. For him to direct your paths means that you have to give up control. You have to give up self-confidence. You can't be leaning on your own understanding. You can't have your paths directed by the Lord while at the same time you're refusing to acknowledge him. You're refusing to start leaning on him instead of yourself. But he says once you start acknowledging him and leaning on him, then he'll direct your paths. You have to get the order straight there. You see, the other thing to consider as you think about being taught by the Lord. So show me your ways, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, and teach me how does God primarily teach us today? God primarily teaches us today through his word. Here's another one to put on the list, kids. 2 Timothy three, sixteen through 17. All scripture is what? No one. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. With what intent in mind? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does God do use to complete that, to make us prepared, equipped for every good work that he has planned for us in our lives? He uses Scripture. And what is one of the benefits of Scripture? It's profitable for what? For instruction. So teach me, O Lord. God says, I'm trying. I'm trying. But you don't give two hoots about my word. Now, is that intended to be insulting to you? The answer is no. Each one of you knows your heart and your own desire for God's word. I will just say that I think we're self-deceived at times about how much we actually care about God's truth because as somebody was saying, as it related to first tense salvation, they were talking to somebody, sharing the gospel with them, asking them you know, if they were interested in the things of faith. Every time they tried to bring it up, the person would change 
change the conversation or change the topic. But then at the same time, that person would say they were interested in knowing God's truth. Well, the believer challenged them in that context and and said, for somebody who says he's interested in knowing God's truth, you never want to talk about him. You never want to hear about him. You never want to read about him. You never want to learn anything about him. So can those things be true and at the same time the original premise be true? That you're interested in the things of faith. And it's convicting, isn't it? Because there's not one of us, and that starts from here and includes every single person who's here tonight, every one of you who's listening to this at some future date online. The truth is we say all kinds of things. We try to convince ourselves of all kinds of things, but the proof is in the pudding. If we were really interested in these things, we'd make more time for them. And we make time for all the other vital things in life. I mean, it's hard to find a person who's couldn't make time for a meal. I mean, in this country, we're so blessed with bountiful amounts of things, including shelter, clothing, food, the necessities of life. In fact, we have access to so much food that most people can't even remember the last time that they missed a meal or skipped a meal. Because we've been taught that this is vital to our well-being. But other things that are vital to our spiritual well-being, they take a they take a back seat at times. And so the point isn't to be ashamed or to leave here with your head down. The point is to just be reminded and convicted about these truths so that together we can be encouraging one another to have an interest in the things of faith. And to have that interest means to, again, want to talk about those things, meditate on those things, pray about those things, read those things, discuss those things, be taught those things. That's how we encourage one another is to keep the eye on the prize, so to speak. Keep the, keep the important things important. And we can be an example to each other and an encouragement to each other as God transforms our thinking and makes his truth more important to us individually. And then it can kind of spread like wildfire where you see other people, if you see the, the joy of the Lord in your life as being brought about by his truth permeating your thinking and finally clawing its way through those thick skulls of ours, then that brings about changes, not because we're manufacturing them, but because God's truth is now affecting our thinking and God's spirit has something to work with so that he can bring about a manner of living and a way of thinking and a way of life and a way of speaking and a way of acting that reflects who God is. It respects God, reflects God's character. It shines his light in a way that is bright instead of dull or covered. So we move to the next section here. David effectively says, keep dealing graciously with me. So God alone is my refuge and source of help. Teach me, Lord. And now in verses 6 and 7, keep dealing graciously, graciously with me. We pick up in verse 6. Remember, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness' sake, O Lord. See, God deals with man graciously and lovingly. It's on the basis of God's character that man experiences divine acceptance. Now, what are the, some of the things that are said of God's character by David even here? Well, God is merciful. He's loving. He's kind. You have two words put together. They're loving kindness. Tender, tender mercies. That word mercy often is translated steadfast love. So that's where we get 
love from there too. So you, you have this steadfast mercy and love. You're, you're loving, you're kind, you're forgiving. You see that about God's character as he says, don't remember my sins. Asking for forgiveness there. Now what's the last characteristic of God that's brought out? He's good. For your goodness' sake, O Lord, treat me with what? Treat me with grace and love instead of based on merit. See, it certainly has nothing to do with merit or faithfulness on man's part when you think about God's character of being merciful, loving, kind, forgiving, and good. See, David acknowledges his faults and failures. He doesn't gloss them over or hide them. He says, I have sins of my youth, sins that are associated with immaturity is the better way to understand that, not sins that I committed while I was youthful, sins that are identified with immaturity or youthful thinking, youthful behavior. So don't remember those. Another category, he says, is just transgressions in general, where I violate what I know to be your standard, God. Don't judge me or deal with me. Interact with me on the basis of my flaws and my faults and my failure. Interact with me. Accept me on the basis of your divine character of mercy, love, kindness, forgiveness, and goodness. And David, effectively, he's requesting God's forgiveness. Not, not just forgive in the sense of forgive and then remind me of it, but forgive in the sense of casting my transgressions or moving them as far as the east is from the west. Truly moving beyond them in dealing with, with me instead of based on merit, dealing with me on the basis of love and grace. So the idea is, Lord, please see me or interact with me through the eyes of grace and love. Is that, this is a prayer of David's here. Is that your prayer? Now he automatically already does that. But aren't you thankful that God isn't interacting with you or seeing you or accepting you only on the basis of merit? That he isn't seeing you through the lens of your failures and your flaws and your faults and your sins, your transgressions? Aren't you happy that God sees you clearly? He knows you fully, and yet he accepts you completely anyway. He loves you desperately. It's completely unconditional. It's not based on whether you deserve it or not. Thank God that that's his character, that that's his way of dealing with us. And David recognizes that. Remember, we're talking about the humble and reverent heart. Don't you see humility in this? To see, I have nothing to offer God. I see myself for who I am and I'm asking you, God, don't see me through that lens. Keep, keep on being consistent with your character and seeing me through grace and love and mercy, kindness and goodness. Do that instead, God. Now, God's going to, so in, in, some, in some ways it's, I don't think David really doesn't understand that principle. He's just recognizing that God, in fact, is like that. That God is willing to see us in that way instead of through the lens of our faults and failures and flaws. So then we move on here to this next section. The Lord can work with the humble. Verses 8 through 11. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. See, God's standard is perfection because God is perfect. 
And although all men fall short of that standard, yet God seeks to transform believers. God recognizes your need. He recognizes your brokenness. He recognizes your sinfulness. And yet, He loves you anyway, but He loves you with the kind of perspective that a parent would have where they're seeking to assist their child in improving on some of their shortcomings, where they can actually grow in their understanding so that they don't have to keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. They can learn from their mistakes as they learn from their instructor. In the case of the spiritual realm, learn from the heavenly Father. Learn from God's teaching and direction and instruction. And as you think about it, again, God's very character, it results in his willingness to work with flawed humans. It says, good and upright is the Lord in verse 8. Because, so then you could include this now, on the basis of God's goodness and being upright, therefore, it says, he teaches sinners in the way. Because he's a good God. If God wasn't good, he wouldn't mess around with sinners like you and I. It's because God is good and he's good all of the time and it defines his very being that God could see beyond my flaws and my faults and provide for my need. He looked beyond my flaws and saw my need is how the song goes. And you think about it, these are the only people available to work with. If God wants to work with human beings, he's going to have to teach sinners. Because that's the only kind of human beings there are. And you see this phrase in verse 11, it ties in here, so we're going to jump to that before we touch on a couple of the other things. But it says, when you think about God's very character resulting in this willingness to work with flawed humans, you see that in verse 11, and he says, for your name's sake, pardon my iniquity for it's great. On what basis? Because of your name's sake. In a manner consistent with your reputation or because that's the kind of God you are is how we understand for your name's sake. It's because of your very character, your goodness, God, because that's the kind of God you are that you can pardon the guilty. You can pardon my iniquity even though it's grace. It's great. Is there humility in this statement? Pardon my iniquity for it is great. Yeah. You see, an elevated, one with an elevated view of himself who doesn't have humility and doesn't have a reverential awe for God will never be taught anything. So you see that transformation starts with humility. And we're going to gloss through them quickly here because of time, but there's lots of places where that principle is repeated in God's word. Here's several from the New Testament, James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and what? He will lift you up. He can teach you. He can instruct you. He can grow you. He can mature you. He can complete the work He started in you when and only if you're humble. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that what? He may exalt you in due time. How, do you, how are you taught? How, how, how are you experiencing spiritual growth? See, the Lord can only work with the humble. Matthew 23, 12 Jesus says this, and whoever exalts himself, this is context of kingdom teaching, but the principle is still true. Whoever exalts himself, Matthew 23, 12, will be humbled. There's, there's no way to grow apart from that. And he who humbles himself will be exalted by who? Well, by God who can work with the humble and contrite heart. See, David recognizes this fundamental principle. 
He says it in two different ways, but he says, the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. Who is teachable? God can work with who? The one who is humble. And then David describes what the Lord's path or way looks like because now when you say, I have this desire to be taught by the Lord, I have this desire to be led in his ways. Well, what, what does what are the God's ways? What, are that, what does that look like? What is that, how would that be described? And he says that all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. All of the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth in verse 10 there. So then we move on. So not only does God, is God alone my refuge and source of help, David says, teach me, O Lord. Then he talks about keep dealing graciously with me. Verses 8 through 11, the Lord can work with the humble. But then we get to verses 12 through 15 here. The Lord can work with those who revere and respect him. The Lord can work with those who revere and respect him. See, just as you will never seek the Lord's direction and instruction without humility, you will never seek his direction and instruction if you don't respect him. Seeking out somebody's guidance comes from a place of trusting, respecting their abilities, respecting their person, respecting their character, having that awe, that reverential awe and respect for God. So it starts with you have to learn that. Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You'll never live life, you'll never even experience real life as God sees it without humility and fear of the Lord. That fear of the Lord, again, is reverential, respect and awe, for the Lord. Humility and respect are critical to living, really living life. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The only way you're going to learn anything is if you start with humility. You have to see that I need the instruction. Proverbs 9 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're talking again about this reverential awe and respect for the Lord. The beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding is having that reverential awe for the Lord. But you'll never have instruction without it, and you'll never have instruction without humility. The last verse I have is Proverbs 15, 33. It says, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is what? Humility. So you have both of them here in that verse Look it up and maybe meditate on that later this week. Proverbs fifteen thirty three, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. It leads to that. And before you can have honor or growth, you're going to have to have humility. Remember, God exalts the one who humbles himself. David recognizes the importance of reverential awe and respect for the Lord. We see that in verse 12 here. Look back to our text. Who is the man that fears the Lord? That person... Him shall he, in reference to God, teach in the way he, God, chooses. Which man? The man who fears the Lord. Just like the man who's humble can be taught, the man who has reverential awe and respect for the Lord can be taught. You see, when you think about that reverential awe, it's the byproduct of two things, really. One of them involves acknowledging who you really are. recognizing and acknowledging the depravity and the need that accompanies your natural state. If you don't see that, you'll never have reverential awe for God because you'll have an exalted view of yourself. But when you see how broken you are, when you see how needy you are, 
When you see how little you have to offer God and how small you are in compared to the realm of creation, but in compared to God himself, well, then all of a sudden you can have some reverential awe for God. The second thing is you have to acknowledge who you really are, but you also have to recognize who God really is. Sort of a two-sided coin. Recognize and acknowledge who you really are and then recognize who God really is. You do that by considering his past accomplishments, his majesty, his attributes, his character, and that should give you that reverential awe. Now, if you have reverential awe for, the, for the God, if you have that respect, it's going to pr- promote or produce trust and dependence. Because if you're in awe of God and you see how great he is and how wonderful he is, how helpless and hopeless you are apart from him, then you're going to trust him. You're going to depend on him. You're going to see, without him, I lose my way. That's going to be your mentality. But only when you see who you really are and who he really is. You have to be made aware of that, which is why the Bible continuously is seeking to reveal to man who man really is and then who God really is. So that by making that comparison, you would see, I have nothing to offer God, but I need God to direct and undertake in my life. You see, being taught and directed by God, it involves trusting God. Spiritual success and growth is a byproduct of being directed and taught by God. So I have to learn to have this reverential awe and respect for the Lord if I don't by seeing who I am and seeing who He is. I have to have humility. If I have those things, I can grow spiritually because I'm going to then be willing to allow the Lord to direct. I'm going to be willing to let the Lord teach me and show me himself, as I allow him to direct, teach, and show me things, I'll experience spiritual growth. So sometimes you wonder, why am I not growing in my faith? I'd really like to be experiencing spiritual growth. Now, if you don't even care, that's a separate issue for prayer, right? Give me a desire to even care that I would grow spiritually. But if I do care and I want to have that growth, how am I going to have that growth apart from learning from the Lord, being taught by the Lord, being led by the Lord. And I'm never going to do that without that reverential awe and respect of the Lord and without humility. So as you think about spiritual success being a byproduct of being directed and taught by the Lord, look at some of these phrases in verse 13. He himself shall dwell in prosperity. Who? It's a reference back to the one who fears the Lord. That one, his descendants, shall inherit the earth. Now remember, this is in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. Obey and be blessed. Don't obey and be cursed. But God actually promised physical prosperity to the nation of Israel in conjunction with their willingness to obey the Lord. Obedience was always a byproduct of trusting the Lord. So really what it comes back to is the Lord promised them that if you learn to trust me, you'll thrive both in time, physically and spiritually, and you'll thrive in eternity. Now we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. God doesn't deal with us in that way. We're in the age of grace, but at the same time, you talk about spiritual success, it's tied to, am I going to learn to have this respect, this awe, this fear of the Lord? Then you see this phrase in verse 14, the secret of the Lord is revealed, or it's with who? Those who fear him. You want to know about God's ways? You want to know God's truth? Then have a heart that has a reverential awe and respect of God and humility that would say, I'm going to take an interest in God's revealed truth, because God knows more than I do. So if you want to know the ways of the Lord, the secrets of the Lord, it comes from having that awe and that respect of the Lord that would drive you to the, the words of the Word of God, to the words of Scripture. It would give you that desire to find truth where you know you can't find it in yourself or in any other source. 
And it says, he will show them. So the secrets will be revealed to that person who's operating in faith and dependence, has that awe for the Lord. And that person's also going to be shown things. And in this context, his covenant. But he'll show them the faith, his faithfulness as it relates to his, keeping his promises is how, you would, how I would take that. Now, there's only one reasonable response to recognizing this fixed spiritual truth. This fixed spiritual truth is that you're small, God is big. You should have an awe and respect and reverence for the Lord. There's only one response that makes any sense, and that's found in verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he's the one who can pluck my feet out of the net, meaning he's the one who can rescue me. So as I see that God is the one who is alone the source of this truth, he's alone the one who can prosper me, he's the one alone who can undertake in my life for my spiritual well-being, then what if I see how small I am and how big he is, what is the only rational perspective or mindset to have? My eyes are ever turned toward the Lord. I added turn there. My, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Now, that's why I talk about all the time, this idea is that where is your gaze fixed? Seeing as we're surrounded by such, such, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us what? Run with what? Endurance or patience? The race that is set before us. That's the mission. How is that accomplished? It keeps going. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, where is your gaze? Where is your focus? Where is your dependence? Where is your trust? Who are you thinking is going to make this possible in your life? Is it leaning on your own understanding or trusting the Lord with all your heart? You find all these contrasts, but it's, it's dependence or independence. It's walking by faith or walking by sight. It's looking upward or it's looking at the world around you or looking at yourself. But the keys to success are always on where is my focus? Where is my gaze going to be fixed? And how could you say it any better than this right here? My eyes are ever toward the Lord. Write that down. Pray that that would be the desire of your heart. Ask yourself as you leave tonight, does that represent my mentality or my mindset? My eyes are ever toward the Lord. Man, are we so easily distracted though, aren't we? Our, our eyes are fluttering all over the place. And God's just, stay, stay your mind on me. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he's what? Because he trusts in thee fix our gaze. Then we end with this section, staying focused on the one who can help. Verses 16 through 22, we're going to glaze through this because David now ends the psalm where he started. He recognizes that God alone is his refuge and source of help. And here's a practical application of that principle as he now prays for deliverance. I found this on the web, my watch just said. I wonder where you could find this on the web. Here is a practical application, though. He's praying for specific deliverance. Now, he again recognizes that God's rescue would be an act of grace and steadfast love. You see this in verse 16 where he says, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Then in verse 18, he says, Forgive all my sins. He sees that he doesn't deserve this, but yet he turns again. He shows that my focus needs to be on God who alone is my refuge and my source of help, but not because I deserve it but because God is good, because God is gracious, because God is loving. And David ultimately expresses an attitude of complete dependence on God's provision. You see that in verse 20 where he says, I put my trust in you. I put my trust 
in you. And you see in verse 21, he says, I wait, for I wait for you. Very similar to what we just saw with my eyes are ever toward the Lord in verse 15. I wait for you. I put my trust in you. And he's talking about some of the afflictions that he's going through. That's not even the focus here. It's a specific application of what he's facing, but he's, he's just finishing the psalm where he started. God is the only one who can rescue me from these predicaments that I find myself in. And then he finishes in verse 22. He finishes by applying the same dependent mentality he just expressed in relation to his personal trials to his concerns for the struggles of Israel corporately. So he ends with redeem Israel. So he just got done saying rescue me, save me, undertake for me. But then he moves to the more corporate side of it which we could apply to the church. And we could say we think about God and this dependent attitude that God is my only source of refuge and salvation. He's the only source of help as it relates to my life in particular. But then in a more corporate sense, isn't that true as it relates to the lives of this church body, the church even in a more universal sense? Well, yeah. And so then he ends with that prayer. Redeem Israel. And you think about that in the context of help or undertake for the entire body of Christians everywhere they can be found. All of them and everywhere. And redeem them out of their troubles. Rescue them from their troubles is how he ends. So our title was The Humble and Reverent Heart. And you think about this, the Lord wants to instruct and direct you. That's a fixed fact. But humility and reverential awe are needed first. God cannot instruct and, instruct and direct you if you're not humble and you don't have a reverential awe for Him. See, this mindset then produces trust and dependence as you recognize how hopeless and helpless you are apart from His supernatural intervention. And are you convinced of that? Do you see that you're hopeless and helpless? Do you see that you need his assistance? Do you see you need to be led? Do you see you need to be taught? And if you do, then have a posture that's humble. Have a posture that puts him in a place of superiority to you that shows that reverential respect and awe that God deserves because he's so big compared to how small we are. So the real question is, do you presently have that humble and reverent heart? if that's critical to your spiritual growth, if your spiritual well-being depends on it, do you have that reverential awe and respect and humility that is necessary for God to make the changes in your life and to teach you and direct you and show you the things he wants to teach you? That's where I'll leave us with that challenge. Is that true? And if it's not, let's, let's be prayerful about that even on the drive home. God, give me that. Give me that perspective. Give me that attitude because if you're not the one leading... If you're not the one enabling, if you're not the one directing, the way I'm on is hopeless. The way I'm on does not end in anything that is useful. It doesn't end in anything that has any redeeming value. It's ultimately, it ends in destruction. Not destruction in the sense of eternal destruction, but destruction in the sense that it has no, it has no value. It, it's a train wreck waiting to happen. So... I hope we're all convinced by that and even encouraged by that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this psalm that we're able to look at. Pray that it would really have an impact in our thinking and to even change our focus and remind us that we need to keep our eyes ever on you. That my eyes would ever be toward the Lord. That I would have that sense of waiting on you and trusting in you so that you could teach me and lead me in my life as you see fit. Pray that that could be true of all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.